1 Peter 5, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. If you have a pew Bible, that's on page 1016. In 1 Peter 5, we are now at the final section of the body of Peter's letter that we will cover today, and then in our next sermon, finish the letter's final greetings. So we'll read together this morning verses 1 through 11. Would you please stand once more to honor the reading of God's holy word. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. Because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Once more, Father, we pray that the seed that is sown by your word may be given life through your spirit in us that you may accomplish all that you desire for our good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the year 1631, the English printers Robert Barker and Martin Lucas released a new printing of the King James Bible. Unfortunately for Barker and Lucas, they left out a word. Readers of the New Bible must have been startled when they came to Exodus 20.14 and found that the seventh commandment given to Israel was, Thou shalt commit adultery. About a year after the printing, the printers Barker and Lucas were fined a sum equal to about $65,000 in our day. And most copies of the Wicked Bible, as it came to be known, were destroyed, although you can find some in a museum somewhere today. Not is such a small word, and yet of massive importance in Exodus 20, 14. 
Sometimes small words make all the difference. And I think we have one such word in our text today. It's in the first verse. It's the very first word. And it's not even there in every translation. So if you have an ESV like I do, you'll see it. If you don't, it's Russian roulette. I don't know what kind of version you have. But in my version, the first word of the text is the little word so. And it's there in the Greek. But it's so, and it's a connecting word that tells us that what Peter is writing to us here in verses 1 through 11 is tied to something he's previously said. And what he's previously said that he's tying it all to, I think, is in verse 17 of the previous chapter, chapter 4, where he said, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. When I preached on that passage, I argued that the judgment upon the household of God is the judgment not of condemnation, but the judgment of purifying and purging, the judgment of winnowing out the the wheat from the chaff, the judgment that happens by God's sovereign will through persecution and suffering that comes upon the church and that has the effect of purifying the house of God because those who don't really hold to the gospel will quickly fall away when persecution comes. And thus, in light of what God is doing to purify His church through the opposition of its enemies, Peter tells us then, I exhort the elders, do this. I exhort younger people, do this. I exhort all of you, do this. In other words, what he's writing here has to do with how we survive the testing that is coming up on the church. This is not just Peter writing a new abstract treatise on eldership. But he's telling us that things like elders and church membership and church order actually matter for our perseverance in the faith as we face testing and persecution. We need a word like this from God because we are prone to the faulty expectation that we're entitled to a life that is easy. And if we have faulty expectations about what the Christian life will be, we are going to be caught off guard when persecution comes, when suffering comes. And when we're caught off guard by it, it will shake us to our core. If Peter is telling us anything in this passage today, it is that we cannot coast through the Christian life. We cannot imagine it's a smooth and easy sailing but rather we must be intentional in our pursuit of discipleship. We must be intentional in all of the ways that he will lay out here in this passage today. On May 19, 2001, I entered into a marriage covenant with my wife. That wasn't a decision that I made, and then every day since have been able to coast along. No, that's a decision I made, a covenant I entered into, and every day since... I've had to be intentional about keeping that covenant. I have to be intentional about about, uh, taking the steps that are right for a husband to take, to, to be a husband to my wife, a father to my children. This is the kind of intentionality Peter tells us is involved in the Christian life. It's not something we do once and forget about. It's day in, day out intentionality. And that's how we will survive the testing that will come. Peter here gives us three words of instruction in regard to surviving the judgment that is upon the house of God. And I'll go through these uh, one by one. The first one will be a little bit longer than the other two, so don't panic as we go through that one. 
So the first word of instruction is, let us live according to God's ordering of the church in verses 1 through 5. Let us live according to God's ordering of the church. In this section, Peter addresses three groups. He begins by exhorting the elders among you. Now, the elders does not refer here to those who happen to be older. This refers to a church office that we also call pastor or overseer. The New Testament uses all three of those terms interchangeably. In fact, you can see forms of all three of those words in this very passage. Peter addresses the elders in verse 1. He tells them, shepherd the flock of God in verse 2. That's pastor. That's the, the word pastor. And then he tells them to do it by exercising oversight. There's overseer. So anywhere you see elder or overseer or even pastor in the New Testament is referring to this office of authoritative teaching and shepherding of the church. So he addresses the elders first. In verse 5, he addresses you who are younger. And there, again, I don't think he means purely an age demographic. I think he's speaking in generalities. He's speaking more of those who are younger and standing in the church. Uh, in the church that he's writing to, it would have been typical that older men, elders would have been chosen from among older men, and it would have been typical, therefore, that those who were not elders would have been typically younger than the elders. Uh, that doesn't mean there wouldn't have been exceptions in both directions, uh, but that is generally what, what would have been the case, and thus when Peter addresses elders, he's addressing the office holders, and it seems then when he's addressing those who are younger, he's addressing those who are church members under the authority of the elders. And then in the last part of verse 5, he addresses all of you, elders and church members alike. Now, what does he tell us here? Well, what's important for us to gather first regarding these instructions to different groups is that church order matters for our survival of the judgment that is coming upon the house of God. Church order and all those things that you might think are boring, like church polity and organization and structure and authority, those things that, that you don't give a whole lot of thought to, those things really matter in the persevering of God's people in the faith. And Peter shows us here why that is the case what it actually looks like when this is functioning properly, and how God uses it to bring us through the testing on God's house into the inheritance of our salvation on the last day. He tells elders first, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. What, indicates, what that indicates about this verse is that the flock, the church, is God's church. Every church of Jesus Christ is a church that belongs to God. The people of that church are God's people. They are His sheep. It doesn't belong to any one of us. It doesn't belong to the elders. It belongs to God, and the elders are mere stewards of God's precious possession. But he also says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. God has a flock that is scattered throughout the world. But any given elder is only responsible for the flock that he oversees. Any given elder is only responsible for a local church, not for the whole. So God has a church, but he's placed elders over each local church to give oversight as stewards of his precious possession. In his commentary on 1 Peter, John Calvin said that elders tend to be tempted by three things. 
They, they are tempted to laziness in their work. They are tempted to greed. And they are tempted to a lust for power. And Peter addresses all three of those temptations as he tells elders what not to do and what they should do. So he says you should not shepherd the church of God, shepherd the flock of God uh, under compulsion, verse 2. But you should do it willingly as God would have you. That is, it is not merely an obligation. An elder who would approach the task of oversight thinking, well, somebody's got to do it. That elder is going to be prone to laziness in his work. Because he's doing it merely out of a sense of obligation. On the contrary, he should see it as a task he is eager to pursue. Knowing that God wants him to do this work eagerly. Peter goes on to say it should not be for shameful gain, but eagerly. Uh, not for monetary profit. An elder who's driven by greed is one who does not have the good of the flock in view. He has his own good in view. And he'll be an elder prone to various temptations regarding financial matters. So an elder is not to do it for shameful gain, but eagerly because he enjoys doing this work because it is his delight to serve God in this way. And then third, Peter tells him, uh, not domineering, verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, rather than lusting after power and desiring to domineer over those under you, as though you are above the law, but they are under it, and you get to wield authority uh, apart from them. No, an elder is to be an example. An elder is to, to demonstrate to the church the expe expectations that I hold you to, I also hold myself to. Uh, the expectations I have of any church member, I likewise fulfill. Elders, in other words, are to be model church members. Now, it's possible you could push all three of these instructions too far. Uh, of course, an elder should feel a sense of obligation about what he's doing, right? That's not a bad thing. Uh, the Bible is clear throughout other, other passages that elders should be cared for financially by their churches. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Uh, in addition, an elder should not be afraid of the idea of authority. He has a legitimate authority in which he walks. But the point Peter's making is that these three things, obligation and financial uh, support and authority, these are not the primary motives for his work. These are not the things that drive him. What should it be that drives an elder? It should be that he loves and he serves God because he loves to care for the precious flock entrusted to him. That is what should drive any elder. Now, I, I say this to my fellow elders here this morning, and I also say it to all men in this congregation who aspire to this office. Let that be your motivation, that you love God and you count it a privilege to care for His precious flock. It is one of the supreme privileges of my life that I get to serve in this capacity among four other men uh, alongside them for your good. But I also have these four other men to play this role for me. These four other men are here to shepherd me and to oversee me. And I am immensely grateful for that privilege. So elders and aspiring elders 
shepherd the flock of God from pure motivations and do so in view of the reward that Peter tells you is held out for you here in verse 4. Look again at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That is what you looked forward to. That is what you focus your energy on, that one day Christ will return, the chief shepherd, the chief pastor of the church. He will be revealed, and when he does, I will give an account to him for the way I have overseen his church. And if I have done so faithfully, I will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, is this literally a crown that Jesus will give to us? I don't think it is. I don't think he's speaking of a literal crown of glory. I think far more likely what Peter means is a faithful elder will receive the reward of seeing the people that he has loved, the people that he has shepherded, the people he has prayed for, the people he has counseled, the people he has preached to and taught, the people that he has suffered with enter into their eternal glory. And when he sees that, that will be his reward. And when he sees Jesus tell him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That will be his reward. And there is nothing greater to imagine than that reward for an elder. So elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. What about the rest of you, church members, as he says in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, very, very simple command he gives here. Be subject to the elders. And that's all he says. Be subject to the elders. Now, this instruction can be hard for us to swallow in our setting in an age when authority and submission are concepts that are debated as even worthwhile today. When we live in a a very anti-institutional age, anti-authority age, where every authority figure is suspected of having a hidden agenda of wanting to impose and abuse those beneath him. You see a, a command like this and you wonder, Peter, are you just making a power play here? on behalf of church leaders. After all, Peter said, I'm a fellow elder, so is he just just trying to help his buddies abuse their office by commanding others to submit? That's not the case at all. Peter has already told the elders, don't domineer over those under you. He's already addressed that issue. Don't domineer, don't wield authority in an abusive way. But be an example to the flock. However, you do have authority. You do walk in authority given to you by Christ. And therefore, those of you who are younger, submit to the elders. Be subject to them. Now, how this ends up working out in a local church setting is there are basically two kinds of things, two kinds of actions that elders might take where this would impact you as church members in your expectation of being subject to the elders. Uh, One kind of matter would be matters that is simply biblical. If the elders are giving biblical instruction and are applying the Bible to you and to your life, then really it's not the elders' authority that you're submitting to, it's God's authority. If we tell you God has said this and you rebel against that, you're rebelling against what God has said, right? 
Uh, of course, when we wield this kind of authority, we, we, invite, we ask that you hold us to the text, that you, you let the text of Scripture be the authority. And in any way we deviate from it, hold us accountable to that. But that's one kind of matter. The second kind of matter, there are a quite a few decisions that we have to make in a church that don't come directly from the Scripture. And good Christian people could uh, think we might need to do this, and other good Christian people might think we need to do this. So, for example, how much do we budget for line item X versus how much do we budget for line item Y? How do we organize our Sunday school program? What time are we going to gather for Sunday morning worship? The decisions go on and on and on. And the Bible doesn't ever come out and tell us, you must do this, not this. And yet, we still have to make a decision, don't we? We still have to have a budget that we pass. We still have to have some kind of plan for Sunday school. We still have to agree, we'll, we'll meet and worship at this time, not this time. And so many other decisions happen that way. And in decisions like this, the elders of this church have always welcomed feedback from the congregation. There have been many conversations we've had with church members that have changed our thinking on certain decisions that we've been inclined toward. And so we are grateful for honest feedback on decisions like this. But at the end of the day, we do have to make a decision. And when we make decisions on these matters, I think what Peter's getting at here is that being subject to the elders is having a disposition that says, as long as my elders are not clearly violating Scripture, I'm going to submit. I'm going to go along with what they recommend. After I've heard and made my contribution, I'm going to go along with what they have said. I'm going to trust their leadership, in other words. I've been an elder at this church now for uh, seven years, over seven years. And I have experienced this dynamic working tremendously well. I have seen this. This is is the way Cornerstone thinks. And as elders, it makes us joyful and grateful that you trust our leadership in these ways. We, We are overjoyed to have a church that trusts us and is willing to follow where we lead, even in matters where we can't say, this text says we must do it this way versus this way. When elders love God and their people, and when their people trust their elders, life is good together in a church. And I think this is what we're experiencing here at Cornerstone. I want to praise you and thank you for that. And I want to encourage you and exhort you to abound in that all the more. So Peter tells Church members, be subject to the elders. And then he tells everyone at the end of verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride will destroy and divide a church. Pride turns everyone away from the good of others and inward toward their own selfish interests. Prideful elders will lose trust from their flock. Prideful church members will hinder the leadership of the elders. What will be the result in a church like that where we walk in pride toward one another rather than humility? The result is we are not walking together. And if we are not walking together toward the celestial city, 
we are becoming more and more isolated. And the more isolated we are, the more vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Peter is about to tell us in verse 8 that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It is in our interest, therefore, to walk together. To stay together like a herd of elephants that Lee was talking about the other day. The herd of elephants that protect the weakest among them by the strength of the herd from the attacks of the lion. We will be stronger together, but to be together, we must be humble toward one another. We must genuinely desire the good of others above our own and seek the good of others above our own. Now, an application to us today is that God's institutional structure, the way He has designed the church to work, is His plan for our perseverance in the faith. What that means is you ignore or minimize the local church to your own peril. I want to speak for just a moment to those who are listening to us online or who may do so in the future. I'm so grateful that you are listening. I'm so grateful that you have the opportunity, we have the technology to make this possible. But I want to be clear about this. Listening to a sermon online is no substitute for gathering with the church. It is not even close. So if you are listening online because you choose not to be with a local church, I want to ask that you would repent of that. And I want to call you to faithful gathering with the church. Whether that be this church, whether that be some other church, but I want you to gather with fellow disciples because we need one another and we need to walk together. If you do not have elders who are accountable for you, if you are here this morning, if you're listening online, you don't have any elders who are going to give an account for your soul because you are not under the authority of a church, you're not members of a church, I just want to ask you this question. Why would you deny yourself that benefit? Why would you deny yourself that means of grace? To have men of God who know they are responsible for you, overseeing you together in a congregation that is doing the same. If you're not a member of a church where this is happening, I exhort you to seek to join a church and to do so soon. Those of you who are members of our church, those of you whom we do oversee, I want to exhort you to recognize what is going on when we reach out to you to check on you. I want you to recognize what's happening there. We are seeking to be faithful to what God has commanded us. We are seeking your perseverance in the faith. We are seeking to make sure you survive the testing that has come upon the house of God. So when that happens, I hope that you see us reaching out in love toward you. And I hope that you see us reaching out in a way that caused you to want to respond openly and honestly, to tell us what's going on, and to help us in any way that we may help you. And so as we do this together, as we live as, as elders and as members and all of us clothed with humility toward one another, we see how God has ordered the church for our good. Peter then goes on to give us a second word of instruction in verses 6 and 7, and that is 
let us pursue humility before God, especially through prayer. Let us pursue humility before God, especially through prayer. Have you ever known someone who walked away from the faith because of some experience of suffering in his or her life? I think in a room this size, we could probably tell many stories of cases like that that we have heard or known about. Why does that happen? It happens because suffering presses on our hearts. And our hearts are oriented toward one trajectory or another, either toward God or away from Him. And as suffering presses us, it pushes us farther into our natural trajectory. It will either push us closer to God or it will push us away from Him. But suffering is the crucible in which our faith is tested. And faith that is not real will not last. So everything Peter tells us here, I think, is in the context of what we've been talking about. The suffering that is coming upon the church to refine it, to judge it, to purify it. And Peter tells us how to face that suffering in verse 6 where he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. As you experience suffering... Do so humbly before God. This is what Peter is telling us. Acknowledge the sovereignty of God over your sufferings. Acknowledge that He is God, that you are not, and that everything that happens is ultimately from His hand. What would be the opposite of humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God? The opposite would be to rise up in accusation against Him, to turn away in bitterness from Him, to put distance between Him and us, and to assume that we are entitled to something better and that God is holding out on us. That would be the opposite of humility. But humility before God that Peter is telling us, builds on the promise of Proverbs 3.34. He just quoted that in verse 5 when he said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility before God is what will bring us exaltation at the proper time. When Peter speaks of the proper time, he's speaking of the, the coming final judgment. On the day of the final judgment, we who are humble before God, rather than accusing and growing in bitterness and distancing ourselves from Him, We who humble ourselves before Him will be exalted. We will be exalted over all of those who oppose us. We will be exalted over all who persecute the church and oppose our message. But humility is not grinning and bearing it. That is not what Peter is saying. He's not saying just grin and bear it. What he's saying is turn to God, not away from Him in the times of your suffering. In fact, we know he's not saying grin and bear it because he tells us what to do in verse 7. And that is casting, this is how you humble yourselves before God, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is what it looks like to be humble before God. It looks like calling out to him in prayer. It looks like lamenting to him in honesty, making known to him our anxieties, releasing our anxieties to him. 
Now, if you put verses 6 and 7 together, you can infer that holding on to anxiety is actually an act of pride. Holding on to anxiety is an attempt to act autonomously from God. It is to act as though we have control, not Him. But Peter says, humble yourselves before Him by casting your anxieties upon Him. Now, I know how this works so oftentimes. You have anxiety over something and you, you pray to release it to the Lord and you find yourself the next day or maybe the next hour trying to grab that anxiety back. So what do you do? You cast it again. And you cast it again. And you cast it again and again and again. And you do it multiple times a day if you have to. But you keep doing it until it becomes second nature. Until it becomes part of your character. This is the person I am. I am a person who trusts God in moments of anxiety. That's just what I do because I've done it so much. That's what Peter's telling you to do. That's how you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You call out to Him. And the Psalms give us such models of lament, such models of how to cry out from the depths of our hearts. And if you don't have the words, go to the Psalms and let David and the other psalmists give them to you. But the important thing is that you turn to the Lord in those moments. Release your pride and release your anxieties into His hands. And you do it, Peter says, at the end of verse 7, because He cares for you. He cares for you. He is eager to hear what is causing you anxiety. He is eager to take it from you. Now, this is the same God that Peter has just said in chapter 4, verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. The same God who's sovereign over all of that is the same God who Peter has said in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. This is the same God who's sovereign over every bit of suffering that comes into our lives. The same God who, if he, could, if, uh, if he wanted to, he could easily remove all suffering from us immediately. And yet, for whatever reason, he chooses not to. The same God who is absolutely sovereign over everything we face. Peter says he cares for us. He does not bring these sufferings into our lives because he hates us. He does it because he loves us. You put everything Peter says together and you can draw no other conclusion. These are God's loving providences in our lives. Every affliction we have is ultimately from his love because we have the promise of Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So let us pursue humility before God, especially through prayer. And then a third word of instruction, let us pursue vigilance against the devil. Let us pursue vigilance against the devil in verses 8 through 11. Persecution puts pressure on the church. Pressure either to compromise, to change what we believe and practice so that we will have the world's approval rather than 
its opposition, or to stand firm. And when we are in those moments of pressure, there is a lion waiting to pounce. And that's what Peter tells us here in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Sober-mindedness is simply clarity of thought. It is the opposite of being intoxicated, of having your mind clouded by the things of this world. In other words, being sober-minded is constantly having God's interpretation of reality at the forefront of your mind, rather than allowing the things of this world to distract you from God's interpretation of reality. Now, you have to be intentional to be sober-minded. You have to fight to renew your mind. Furthermore, Peter says you must be watchful or guarded, vigilant against the devil, always waiting, always watching for his temptation, for his schemes to destroy you. Recently, I had the opportunity to ride in one of these new Tesla cars, these electric cars. Uh, my, one of my family members owns one, and these cars can drive themselves. He, he demonstrated that for me on the streets of Louisville. Uh, it was fun. One of these days, one of these days, I will imagine, I, I, if I were a betting man, I would put money on it. And I would say, one of these days, every car will be self-driving. One of these days, the experience of driving will be getting into a car, putting in your destination, and then reading a book or checking Facebook while your car gets you there. That's the future. That is probably going to happen, I predict. Well, if Peter's telling us anything here, it is that there is no self-driving Christian life. There's no option to put in your information and just coast. He's calling us to vigilance. He's calling us to intentionality in the habits we build into our lives. Week by week, day by day, renewing our minds according to the Word of God, ever vigilant for the lies of the enemy, knowing that if the lies of the enemy take root in our hearts, it is game over, and the lion has us. So Peter tells us in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. How do we resist the devil? Do we have to memorize a, a lengthy exorcism procedure? Do we have to wield supernatural power in an extraordinary way? No, you don't have to do anything like that. How do you resist the devil? You stand firm in your faith. That's what Peter says. Resist him firm in your faith. Strengthen your faith. How do you strengthen your faith? You attend to the means for strengthening faith that God has given. And God has given the ministry of the Word through the local church. He has given the celebration of the ordinances to the local church. He has given us prayer. He has given us the fellowship of one another. If you have a life characterized by those things, you're going to be a pretty good shape against the devil. If you have a life where you've withdrawn from those things, the lion has you in his sights. It's 
pretty much that simple. That's how life tends to work. Devote yourself to the ordinary means God has established for the strengthening of your faith. And then Peter, in giving us these instructions, also gives us three words of comfort here at the end in verses 9 and 10. At the end of verse 9, he tells us to stand firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's his first word of comfort. It is that what you experience in suffering is not unusual. In other words, when you suffer, it is not as though something has gone terribly wrong and you're experiencing an extraordinarily, extraordinarily bad version of the Christian life. And you were actually entitled to get a better version, but you just something went wrong. No, he's saying this is, this is the normal Christian life. This is how it works. This is what you signed up for. And every one of your brothers and sisters around the world know the same thing. So it is comforting to know nothing's gone wrong. This means that everything is going the way I should expect. His second word of comfort is in verse 10. He says, and after you have suffered a little while. Notice that, a little while. The sufferings of this age, as intense as they can be, when compared to the future glory that is to come, are nothing. When you place the few decades of life that we have here on this earth with eternity that is to come in the next age, you have one drop measured against a vast ocean. The sufferings of this present age, Paul says, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you can endure it because it's only for a little while. That's his second word of comfort. The third word is at the rest of verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The third word of comfort that Peter gives is that your sufferings will not overcome God's purpose of grace. What he's saying here is the same thing Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. What Peter is saying then is that when we look at the big picture of all of this, God is the one who calls. God is the one who keeps. God is the one who saves. Our perseverance in the faith is really God's preservation of us in the faith. That's what it is. His grace does not cancel our responsibility to heed the instructions and the warnings of the New Testament, but neither do our efforts in any way minimize that He is sovereign over every bit of our salvation from beginning to end. And He Himself will bring all of His children to final glory. God will preserve us on the last day. Peter closes out the body of his letter. Having given us all these instructions, he closes out the body of his letter with the comfort of the promise 
of divine grace. Let our focus and our attention go there. And let us rest in who our God is. I have said repeatedly, as I've preached through this letter, and then before this I preached through the book of Daniel, I've said repeatedly that we are in a cultural moment when matters of sexuality and gender are being pushed upon us in such a way that is leading to greater and greater opposition to the truth of the gospel and therefore of God's church. We are entering into a day when greater social pressure is going to be put on Christians to conform to the spirit of the age or to suffer and be marginalized. A few years ago, a former professor at Union University, David Gushy, wrote an article in which he made this very argument. Now, Dr. Gushy is on the other side of these issues than we are. Uh, he has now come out in full affirmation of same-sex marriage. But he wrote this article a few years ago in which he made this statement. It turns out that you are either for full and unequivocal social and legal equality for LGBT people, or you are against it, and your answer will at some point be revealed. This is true both for individuals and for institutions. Neutrality is not an option. Neither is polite half-acceptance, nor is avoiding the subject. Hide as you might. The issue will come and find you. Now, I disagree with where Dr. Gushy stands on this issue, but I think he is right in his assessment of what is coming. This issue will come and find you. It is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. The way you're going to stand when it comes is to decide now, to decide today that you will stand firm then. Don't wait until the moment comes. Make the decision now that no matter what the cost, you will stand with Christ. And Peter tells you as you do that, devote yourself to the church. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God through prayer and guard your mind from the lies of the adversary. Amen. One of the lies that the adversary tells us, and perhaps he's telling you right now, I want to speak for just a moment to you who have never confessed faith publicly in the Lord Jesus. One of the lies that the enemy may be telling you right now is that God will never accept you. And I want you to know that's a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell because God has given His Son and His Son has died for the salvation of sinners. He has been raised from the dead for our justification. And if that's you this morning, you have never confessed faith publicly in Jesus Christ. I call upon you to take God at His word, which is anyone who believes, anyone who repents of sin is welcome to Him. Anyone who turns and comes to Christ will be received. We call you to that so that you may be publicly identified with Christ through baptism. We as a church are eager to baptize you if you would like to profess your faith.
And so we invite you to talk to one of us about what to do next, if that is your desire. For those of you who are baptized believers and you are members of a church, we call upon you this morning to share with us at the Lord's table. Even if you are a believer, the enemy still tries to tell you lies. And one of those lies is the same one I mentioned a while ago, that God doesn't accept you. That God doesn't welcome you. We have to fight that every day as believers. And so one of the ways we fight that is by eating and drinking every week at the Lord's table to remind ourselves, yes, He does accept us because His Son's body was broken for us and His blood was spilled. So if that's you this morning, you're welcome to eat and to drink with us. Let's take a moment of silence as we prepare the table.